Dear Father, we just thank you for your work in our lives. We thank you for your faithfulness. Father, some of us come in today the low of lows, others on a high of high. But the truth is, God, we're all in a place where we need you regardless of how we entered this building this morning or how we sit in our kitchen watching this right now. Father, we're all in the exact same place. We need you. So we're asking you right now to open our minds and to soften your, our hearts so we hear what your word has to say to us this morning. We ask these things in your son's name and we all pray together. Amen. Well, if you've been with us, you know that we're in the middle of a sermon series called Hashtag Jesus. We're actually following the life of Christ through his earthly ministry. We're not doing this for a, a history lesson. We're, we're doing this to, to really understand who Jesus was and what he means to our life. We're doing it to, to, to know Jesus more intimately, to follow him more passionately, and to desire to obey him wholeheartedly. And throughout this series so far, we have seen Jesus leave his hometown, head south to the Jordan River down by the, the Dead Sea, um, and to go and to be baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And this was the initiation of his earthly ministry. Shortly after that, we saw him head west into the desert where the Spirit led him to be tempted by Satan. And there, for the first time, we see him as fully man because he's tempted, but also fully God as he was able to be without sin during that time. We also see um, Jesus introduced as a lamb of God by John, introduced as the, as the one who will take away the sins of the world. In Cana, we saw Jesus perform his first miracle as he turned water into wine. Then we saw Jesus interact with Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, a religious leader that had heard Jesus' teaching and wanted to know more about him and more from him, but wanted to know what, what was this new life? What does it mean to be born again? And Jesus shared with him and told him, and we learned that it's only through Jesus Christ that we can have this new life. And then last week, we saw Jesus went off the beaten path, and instead of taking a normal route home, he ended up going straight through Samaria and had a divine appointment with a woman at the well. And there we learned that all people need Jesus. Well, today we pick up Jesus' journey as he's going home for the first time in his earthly, first time in his earthly ministry. Now, if you guys have been away from home for any period of time, you've undoubtedly have looked forward to your homecoming. Maybe it was uh, when you were a kid and you went away to camp and you were coming home after camp season. It could have been uh, when you're away at college and you were coming home maybe for the first time on a weekend. Or maybe it's a, you were on a business trip for a week or sometimes a month or being in the service, you're gone for a longer period of time, but you've undoubtedly have looked forward to that, to that homecoming. And it seems the longer that we're away, the more we look forward to it. And I don't know what it is for you, but there's something about it when I walk in the door and the dog goes completely crazy, surprised that I actually found my way back to the house, right? Or, or, or you know, hugs and kisses from my, from my kids and from my wife or or, you know, fellowship with friends. 
And it, but the longer it is, we just desire for that connection. While Jesus was on his way home after being gone for more than a year, and he was returning a man on a mission, a man living out a divine plan. But God knew when he got there that they were not going to like what he had to say. Not one bit. So take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 4 as we follow Jesus in this little journey. We're actually going to look at verses 14 to 30 today. And what I find interesting about these 17 verses is that it, this kind of is a summary and kind of encapsulates Luke's writing about Jesus' earthly ministry as a whole. Where we see in these 17 verses that Jesus claims to be the Messiah. And the, uh, Jewish, the Jewish people don't like what he has to say about it. And then lastly, Jesus shares that actually this message is for more than just the Jews. It's for everyone. So let's look at starting at verse 14. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. So Jesus is traveling around. He's doing all these teaching. He's working some miracles. He's doing all this stuff. And everybody's just riding a wave of popularity at this point. And now verse 16, he turns to go home. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Everyone was looking at him. Okay, so, so Jesus starts his homecoming with about a five-mile trek from Cana. He's, he's coming in the town five miles, uh, and he gets there, kind of arriving upon this, this universal praise of this ministry that he's got going on. And when he gets there, he goes straight in and follow his family's tradition and goes to worship within the synagogue. Now this service, when they would have started the synagogue service, they would have started by reciting scripture, which was called the Shema, right? It's the Hebrew word, which means to hear. And what this was is this central verse is really the, 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 the pledge of the Jewish people to God, pledging their allegiance to the one God that there was. And we actually find that scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. So when this service started, they would have recited this scripture. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So after reciting the Shema, they would have, they would have prayed, 
then there would have been a reading from the Pentateuch or Torah. Then would have been a reading from the prophets. There would have been a sermon. And then they would have concluded the service with a priestly blessing. That would have kind of been the, the order of service, if you will. And Jesus was given the privilege that day of the one that's going to do the reading from the um, prophets and then give the sermon. So a very high honor bestowed upon him as he um, came back into his town. And what he did is he read the verses that we see in Luke 4, 18 and 19. Those are actually from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and part of verse 2. And what I want to do is I just want to take a moment to take a look at this scripture because this is key to what Jesus is saying is going on here. It's extremely powerful, this passage. First of all, we see it's a messianic passage. It's talking about the coming of the Christ. But we also see in the very first eight words of this is the Spirit. We see the Lord. And then who's the me? It's Jesus. So in the first eight words of this passage, as Jesus reads, we have the Trinity identified. In the first eight words, we have the Spirit, the Lord, and Jesus right there. And then in the next part of that first verse, it says that anointed me, right? Again, Jesus was anointed by the Lord. We saw that in the baptism where when, when Jesus was baptized, the Spirit came down on him. Remember the imagery of a dove? The Spirit was upon the Lord at that time. And then what we see next is, look, he goes on to say, he proclaims he sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, we're going to heal people, I'm going to set the oppressed free, and I'm going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what we, all, what we have laid out right here is the purpose. So we see the Trinity and who God is, all three persons of the Trinity, the anointing of Jesus for his role, and the purpose of why Jesus came. So Jesus is standing there in front of his hometown peeps saying, hey, this is about me. This scripture here, this is written about me. I am the one that you have been waiting for. I am the fulfillment of this scripture. So Jesus reads those one and a half verses. He doesn't, he doesn't even get to complete, doesn't even finish verse two. Because you actually look at the rest of verse two, that talks about his second coming, the second advent. Well, he wasn't there. Jesus is there in the flesh right now. So he's just talking about his first advent. And what does he do? He takes the scroll, he rolls it up, he sands it to the attendant, and he sits down. Now, this would have been an amazingly short reading in that synagogue service. It's no wonder why the eyes of everyone were fixed upon him. So now it is time for Jesus to expound on this text. It's time for Jesus to preach. It's time for Jesus to bring the heat, as they like to say in the Bible Belt. Right? What is Jesus going to say? This is God himself. Can you imagine the anticipation in that room that God himself is going to bring the message? Well, look at verses 21 and 22 to see how this starts out. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. 
So they're just, they're amazed at this point. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that come from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. So what's their response? Their response, they said they spoke well of him. They loved what he had to say. Great sermon, Jesus. Bring it. We've known Jesus be little. I've known him since he was knee high to a grasshopper. He has done good. This is one of our own right here that's speaking with authority and speaking with power and speaking with conviction. This is Jesus bringing the heat. But then Jesus wasn't done. It was time to put his message about who he was to application and find out what it meant to those sitting there. Look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. So the first thing Jesus said before they said is to say, he does a preemptive strike that says, hold on one second. But why does he do that? Why does he say, don't, you're going to ask me this? He does this preemptive strike. He says, I have no honor. Well, because he knows what's in the heart of everybody sitting there. He knows what they're thinking. He knows what's in their heart. Right? John 2, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Verses, I'm sorry, 23 and 24. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Right? So see the sign, and then they believed. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. He knew what was going on inside of them. You see, out front, Jesus knew that his reputation and his miracles and his acts preceded his arrival into going into his hometown. He knew what they would be thinking. All right, Jesus, you're from here. I heard what you did over there. I heard what you did at Capernaum. I heard what you did in the countryside. I heard all these great messages. Show us something. Show us something. I know you're standing there claiming to be God, but show me if surely enough you're from here, you're going to at least do what you did over there. And actually, I would expect you to do a little more for us since this is your hometown. And we kind of get this sense in the context of this story that the people of Nazareth had this, 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 this special place for Jesus, right? That they had some special claim on him, that they had him hit the market of Jesus and his grace and his love cornered just to them. So when we think about their response and what they're sitting or what Jesus knows they're thinking, he's saying, hold on. You doubters don't think that I don't know what you're thinking and don't think I don't know what your heart is. He goes, come on, guys. Basically, you, you know me. You have, you have watched me grow up here. You, you know my mother, Mary. You know how I was, the story of how I was conceived. And 
you know my father Joseph and, and how he stayed by my mother despite the embarrassment and the public shame of how I was conceived. And you, you've, you've heard what the stuff I've done. You've seen, heard what I've said in front of you. But yet you're going to look at me and wonder and say, okay, that's great that you said that, but show me something. You know, to me, that, that is convicting. Because it seems like we act the same way at times in our lives. God is all over our lives. He's in everything that we do. He never leaves us. He never stops loving us. He's always faithful. He never changes. He's ever present. But yet, we get to a point in our life where we're like, all right, Jesus, you got to show up. You got to show up in this mess that I'm in. You got to, you got to come out of here and pull me out of this. It's like, like Jesus like took the day off or something. Like he's not with us. And, and, and he's all around us and everything we do, miracles abound. We just have to open our eyes and look at it. Well, this is the same thing with the Jews sitting there that day. They're not looking at the God for what he is and who he says he is. They want to see that plus more. Show me some miracles. You know, then right after this, he does his preemptive strike. It seems that Jesus takes his hard right turn in his message where he's reading from the book of Isaiah. Then all of a sudden, he jumps to start talking about Elijah and Elisha. And then preacher in me is like, hold on a second. Hold on, Jesus. Context, context. Where are you going with this? You can't be jumping around. Help me get from here to here. But he doesn't have to worry about context. He is speaking to the Jewish people who knew the Old Testament inside and out. And as he started to transition, really they transition, takes his hard right to talk, start talking about Elijah and Elisha, the Jewish people would have been right along with him as he does so. And look what Jesus does in um, tw uh, verses 25 through 27. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet, right, despite all the famine, despite all the widows in Israel, despite what's going on in this country right here, Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in a region of Sidon. And in addition to that, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. Jesus looks them in the eyes and says, you remember Elijah? You remember him? Famine for three and a half years. Widows everywhere. Need around every corner. But God chose to send his prophet Elijah to the widow in Zarephath to help her. And if that's not enough for you, you doubters, the prophet Elisha, there was leprosy issues all over Israel at the time. But God didn't send Elijah, Elisha to work in Israel he sent him out to a Syrian, right? A Gentile leper in Syria. And God chose to send them 
out to help the Gentiles despite the need right in their own country. Jesus is saying, listen, you doubters. I'm a lot more than you think I am. This is not all about you and this little box that you're trying to fit me in isn't big enough for what God has called me to do. God's plan for my life is way bigger than the stuff going on here in Nazareth. And his love is for more than the people of Nazareth. You know, and I love this illustration that he uses using Elijah and Elisha because there's really a double meaning right here. So there's this immediate context of which they're in, which is in Nazareth, right? Because Jesus is a real person preaching a real message to real people sitting in a real synagogue. And the message is basically saying, hey, I have no honor here. What I've said and who I am is not good enough. You want me to show you something. You don't have any special claim to me. I'm bigger and my purpose is broader than what you've called me to do. Right? That's real life right there in the context. But also the secondary meaning or the second meaning to this is you can read in a broader context for the nation of Israel as a whole. Because Jesus didn't have any honor within the country itself. So you look at it, it applies the same thing to Israel from a broader context. That he has no honor amongst any of his people, not even in his hometown of Nazareth. So when you think about how that works, Jesus is looking at him and saying, guys, listen, none of you in Israel or Nazareth have a special claim for, on me. The salvation that I offer is salvation for all nations. And this salvation is the same mission that God has been on since the beginning of time, and namely the salvation of peoples from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. So not only does Nazareth have no special claim on Jesus, Israel doesn't either. Well, it turns out that this wonderful message that Jesus is delivering, it wasn't so amazing anymore after hearing that in the eyes of the people that were listening. And the congregation that did not get mad when Jesus said that he was the fulfillment of the scripture became incensed and became angry because he was communicating to them that their community wasn't so special in the eyes of God. And in fact, he, they were saying that God cares more, as much for you, for other people, as he does for you. Now, can you relate to them sitting there that morning? That God actually loves somebody other than you? Well, can you relate when you think about the pilots and the people that planned the attack on the World Trade Centers on 9-11, that God loved them as much as God loves us? Or the hated radical Muslims from ISIS that beheaded innocent people, that God loves them as much as God loves us? And this is a stinging message for them sitting in that congregation that morning. You know how it is when, when one of these messages just hits you, like right in the heart, or you sit here and you actually think that I'm preaching directly <laughs> to you? 
Like somehow I have some insight in what's going on in your personal life. Like I was writing my sermon, what's in your living room window, right? That's what these guys were feeling sitting inside that synagogue this morning. The good news is for Ron and I that you guys do not respond the way that this congregation does. Look at verses 28 to 30. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Okay, so you got to put a picture up here on the screen. So I mean, this is a legit cliff, right? It's 200 feet down. This is the actual cliff on where this action was, where he tried to play out this action. 200 feet down, surely a 200-foot drop that would have killed Jesus. Just a little bit of context. This is Mount Tabor in the back, the, the Jezreel Valley. Uh, the valley here, this is the Valley of Armageddon. This is where the, um, the, the, the final battle uh, will take place in, in end times. But this is kind of the setting, standing on his brow of the hill, ready to launch Jesus over. And, you know, when you think about what they're doing, taking him to the edge of the cliff, and they're just, hold him out of church service, <laughs> drug him to this cliff, and ready to throw him over. This is pretty nice synagogue folks, aren't they? Right? Welcome to full-time ministry, Jesus. And they are just enraged. They're ticked off, and they're getting ready to throw him over. And what happens? He just disappears. He walks away in another living proof that they right, drove him out. Doesn't mean they put him in the Ford Expedition and hauled him out there. Right? Drove him out. They're pushing him, pulling him, dragging him out to the cliff. So they're touching him. He's fully man, but yet he disappears amongst their midst. So he's fully God. Another miracle lived out in front of these people. And the reason is that his time had not yet come. Another amazing display of his deity. Fully man, but yet fully God. Now, can you imagine being a synagogue official and going home that night? Say, honey, how was, how was some service today? Oh, it was, it was, it was great. It was, it was rather interesting, though. Well, what, what do you mean it was interesting? Well, you know, you know Jesus? Oh, yeah, I remember. The carpenter's son? Yeah, I remember him. Well, we had heard that he was going about the countryside and he was, he was preaching and he was teaching and he was healing and he was doing miracles. So when he came home, we invited him to preach at, at the synagogue. Really? What did he preach? We, he, he preached on Isaiah. Was it good? Oh, it was great. He was talking about preaching good news and, and, and helping the poor, healing people. It was terrific. Well, what made it so interesting? Well, you won't believe it, but he actually had the audacity to say that the Gentiles can get help from God like we can. And he actually inferred that they are more responsive than we are. Really? Isn't that like, that's, sort of, that's blasphemy. He goes, yeah, that's what we thought. She goes, what did you do? Well, 
We drug him out of, the, out of church and we, 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 we tried to throw him over the cliff. You know, the hill over there. We tried to throw him over. Really? What do you mean you tried what happened? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I don't know. Did he go over the hill? No. Where'd he go? I don't know. He just walked away. He walked away? Yeah, he just disappeared. I tell you, he just disappeared. He passed through our midst. And you know, thankfully, for those of us that call ourselves Christians today, Jesus was able to avoid the Thelma and Louise plan that that congregation had planned for Jesus that day. It failed because Jesus' time had not yet come. But you know what's fascinating and instructive to me is what made these people so angry. And what amazes me is the hometown congregation didn't fly into to a holy rage when he proclaimed that he was the fulfillment of Scripture. I mean, think about it. He was laying claim to the most sacred prophecies of their faith. So their, their anger wasn't initiated by a desire to protect the holiness of God or the, or the sanctity of their Scriptures. Instead, their rage was reserved for when Jesus claimed that God chose to bless and save those who were outside of their cultural and religious community. That is what made them mad. They were mad because Jesus cared and God cared about other people other than themselves. Not his claims of deity as he stood in front of them. So Jesus had returned to his hometown. To the people that knew him the best. He returned full of the Holy Spirit on God's divine plan. Think about it. God was in their midst. There should have been a band. There should have been balloons. There should have been a buffet. Right? There should have been a party going on. There should have been salvation. There should have been revival. There should have been teaching and, and healing. But instead, Jesus got anger. And what did they want to do when God showed up in power right in front of them, revealing kind of this sin issue that they had in their heart? They wanted to kill him. And they wanted to throw him over a cliff. You know, when I first started studying the scripture for today, I found myself really being amused by the story. Say, how in the world did these people not know that this was the living God standing in front of them? How could they be so blind? He's standing right there. But you know, the more I thought about it, the more I became convinced that we really aren't that much different. Now, we certainly aren't trying to throw Jesus off a literal cliff. But if we're honest, we really are good at pushing Jesus away in our lives. And the more uncomfortable that we get with Jesus in our lives, the harder we push and the further that we want him away from seeing what's going on inside of our hearts and what we're living out in our life. One of the attributes that's used to describe Jesus 
is light, right? And when light's close, it reveals all the stuff that is going on in our hearts. And that's exactly what was happening with those Jews sitting there that day. They didn't like what they felt and they were going to get rid of the one who made them feel that way. I'm sure some of you, you know, we, we think when that, when that light is close and our darkness is revealed, it has nowhere to hide. And so when Jesus are, is close, our sin is exposed. And when our sin is exposed, we, have, we get convicted. And when we, we're convicted, we have to act. Because when we're, we're filled with the Holy Spirit and our sin's exposed, we can't sit by idly. we got to deal with what's going on in our lives. And our natural tendency is to want to push away the one who's exposing our sins to us. And some of us, if we're honest, we've pushed him so far away that if we started looking for him, we wouldn't even know where to begin. And maybe that's come from, you know, a, a, a certain issue going in our life right now or life circumstance that we just don't like. Push Jesus away. Maybe it's a current sin issue going on in your life right now. So you know what? I had to push Jesus away. You know, when I think about this and we, we drift and want to push him away and, and maybe for you, you've, you came to know the Lord over many years ago and maybe it's nothing specific, but just over time, you've just drifted and drifted and drifted away and he's just so far away right now, he's not even working in your life and you don't know where to find him. Maybe it is a particular sin issue life that you're, that you're dealing with, that you're struggling with. I can stand up here all morning and list a thousand reasons on why you could be in the situation you are if Jesus is far away from you. But here's what I can tell you for sure. We're all, we all can agree that we're sinful people. Every one of us sitting in here. Every one of us is wrestling with something in our lives. So the question is, if you're not wrestling with something, you've thrown Jesus over the cliff. You've pushed him so far away that the light is not shining on your life to have you wrestling with this stuff that's inside of you. It wasn't Jesus that walked away. It wasn't Jesus that pushed you away because Jesus' desire is to be with you. Jesus' desire is to have you pull him tight, to pull him close. Because he wants you to know him more intimately. He wants you to follow him more passionately. And he wants you to obey him wholeheartedly. I'm going to ask the pastoral staff and elders to come down. And I want to talk to you guys while they do. Guys, it doesn't matter where you're at right now. The Jews in Nazareth had to deal with the same issue as Jesus spoke truth into their life. And we have to deal with what Jesus is speaking into our lives. So it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter how much you, how far away you are from God. It doesn't matter how bad you think the sin is. There is nothing that will make Jesus love you any less.